Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and the very greatest of emergency medicine. Now let's dive right into it. Let's take a sneak peek at everything that we covered from this week. First of all, low-risk heart score patients, I mean, well, they go home. The high risk, they're going to have to stay. What about the medium risk? It's always harder to know what to do with them. From the second article, vaccines, as we've all heard, are keeping you alive. So how about out of the hospitals? Third, another reason to cause less radiation and use more POCUS. Chest x-rays are not the best method for assessing for heart failure. After that, when you're likely to get a formal ultrasound anyways, is POCUS useful for ectopic pregnancies? And then finally, inotropes. Dibutamine is popular, I feel, but milrinone also does well. Is there a better choice? This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the supportive Jonathan Brewer, Megan Hilbert, Will Croft, Megan Breed, and Clay Smith. So let's get on to the first article, which this week was titled Clinically Relevant, Adverse Cardiovascular Events in Intermediate Heart Score Patients Admitted to the Hospital Following a Negative Emergency Department Evaluation out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So at this point, we're all familiar with the concept of that the heart score can make you feel better about sending chest pain patients home if their scores are three or less. But just a little bit above that, a four, a five, or a six, and we've stepped out of the low risk category into the intermediate risk category. There's still some risk, but it's not as high as being high risk, you know what I mean? So some suggest that these intermediate risk patients with non-ischemic ECGs and negative troponins, well, they could go home. To make that call, I mean, we need to know the risk of clinically relevant adverse cardiac events in this group. To find this out, the authors did a retrospective study of a little bit over 1,100 patients with heart scores of 4, 5, or 6 who were admitted to the hospital in order to rule out ACS. The points that made up these scores of 4, 5, or 6 could not have been contributed to by points that would be allotted for an ischemic ECG or positive troponins, so this is still a subset of these intermediate group. A clinically adverse cardiac event occurred in 0.5% of these patients, so this is a composite outcome, which encompassed life-threatening dysrhythmia, inpatient STEMI, cardiac or respiratory arrest, and all-cause mortality during the hospitalization. Now, that's not too bad. 0.5%, I'd say that's pretty low, half a percent. But, of course, you know, the devil's in the details. If we look at another composite event, like in-hospital major cardiac events, then those occurred at not half a percent, but instead 2.4% of the time. And that's a little bit more of a worrisome number. So this is a problem with, you know, composite outcomes in general, unfortunately. Some variability in what's included in them and suddenly a very different picture. Also, it would have been nice to see outcomes past 30 days in this study, and from the perspective of generalizability, 81% of the population was black, so you just have to keep that in mind before applying it to your population. In a spoonful, this study demonstrated a 0.5% risk of clinically relevant adverse cardiac events in patients with intermediate heart scores where that score was made up of all the things except for an ischemic ECG or troponins. So that's likely a bit too high of a risk to confidently send home. And so that wraps that up. So we move on to the second article, which was titled The Effectiveness of SARS-CoV-2 mRNA Vaccines for Preventing COVID-19 Hospitalizations in the United States out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. 
Now, the benefits and comparative lack of harms, if I'm going to be honest, in getting vaccinated has been something of a hot button issue in many places, particularly the United States. Anyways, even up here in Canada, though, the slightly cooler weather really hasn't chilled anyone out. So let's focus on what matters. The evidence that vaccines have had a meaningful impact on morbidity, mortality, and in this study, hospitalization rates. This study was a case control study in the United States at 18 sites from March until May of 2021. This study only looked at hospitalization rates after the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines and not any other vaccines. There were a total of just over 1,200 total participants, roughly half of which had been hospitalized for COVID-19 infections and the other half were testing negative. So the group hospitalized for COVID-19 had less than a quarter as many vaccinated patients compared to those who were testing negative. Only 8% of the hospitalized group with COVID-19 was vaccinated compared to the other group where there was a 36% vaccination rate. The overall effectiveness of vaccination to prevent hospitalization was calculated to be 87%, which was quite similar when comparing Pfizer to Moderna, so about the same for each. The population with the best efficacy of vaccination was adults aged 18 to 49 years old who were not immunocompromised. If you did have immunosuppression, then the efficacy was quite a bit lower at only 63%. It then comes of no surprise that almost all the cases of vaccine breakthrough infections were in those above 50 years of age or with compromised immune systems. All in all, vaccination works. And it's important to try to speak with all of your patients if you can in order to give them the most accurate information that you can so that they can make the right decisions for them. With Pfizer or Moderna, the effectiveness of them preventing hospitalization was 87% from this study. Keep in mind though that this study was done before the Delta variant was so prevalent, but vaccination is still effective even if there is the Delta variant coming around, it still does a pretty good job. In a spoonful, please get vaccinated if you haven't been already and encourage your patients to do so as well. There's very clear benefit and very low harms. Few treatments that we offer in medicine are this clearly beneficial. And then from there, we can go to the third article, which is titled Diagnostic Accuracy of Lung Point-of-Care Ultrasonography for Acute Heart Failure Compared with Chest X-Ray Study Among Dyspneic Older Patients in the Emergency Department out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So it's pretty standard, I mean, I feel like it's considered that way, to get a chest x-ray on probably more patients than we should. A common chest x-ray that's ordered and is probably pretty low yield when not done discriminately is in the setting of heart failure. So why not save the trouble and get out your POGIS? It could save you waiting around for that chest x-ray to come back and save the patients a trip to radiology. This article was a small cohort of 81 patients reviewing the final diagnosis of older patients who presented to the emergency department with dyspnea. The idea was to clarify their performance of lung ultrasound compared to chest x-ray in identifying acute heart failure, as opposed to the initial presumed diagnosis of COPD in these patients. Here, they were looking for the presence of pulmonary edema, from which they presumed that heart failure was present. They defined pulmonary edema on POCUS as at least three B-lines in two zones using an eight-zone approach. The sensitivity of POCUS at identifying acute heart failure was 93% in this study compared to chest x-ray, which was 64%. So you've got almost a 30% gap there. And there was no improvement in specificity from POCUS uh, compared to chest x-ray. 
So this isn't exactly something groundbreaking, and the study was limited by a small sample size with a high prevalence of heart failure at 36%. And honestly, they didn't assess any patient-oriented outcomes, unfortunately. Also, this study lacks a lot of nuance and didn't get a high appreciation for the myriad of other causes of dyspnea. But it does highlight that POCUS does a good job and could certainly save you some time and possibly the patient some radiation. In a spoonful, in a patient older than 50 years old with shortness of breath in the emergency department, POCUS was more sensitive in aiding in the diagnosis of acute heart failure than a radiologist read chest x-ray. And the fourth article titled Impact of Point of Care Ultrasound on Treatment Time for Ectopic Pregnancy out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. POCUS is an absolute game changer when it comes to pregnant patients coming in with abdominal pain. If you can see an intrauterine pregnancy, then you can feel, I mean, pretty reassured. But if you can't see one and you do see free fluid, then ectopic is suddenly way more likely. Now, I'm so sorry that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to outline an acronym for what is honestly a really simple ultrasound procedure. Seriously, whoever keeps coming up with these, guys, it's way overplayed. We didn't need an acronym for the duo of listening to someone's heart and their lungs when they were presenting with dyspnea, so we probably don't need it for simple POCUS procedures either. Now then, either way, here is the rupture exam. Yeah, I know, it sounds pretty clever, right? Rupture, ectopic pregnancy, right, right, right? So rupture sounds for right upper and pelvic timely ultrasound for ruptured ectopic. Sounded clever a minute ago, and now you look kind of silly. The authors wanted to know the impact of the POCUS exam on treatment times for ectopic pregnancies. At least that's a very relevant question. This was a retrospective observational cohort review of 109 patients admitted for operative management of ectopic pregnancies. 39 of them had POCUS done on them, and 26 of those went on to also get a formal ultrasound. The rest all had transvaginal radiology-performed ultrasounds. Now, the mean emergency department wait times for these patients, the ones who had POCUS done on them, was 158 minutes, which was quite a bit less than those that only had the formal ultrasound, which was 206 minutes. So you got a 50-minute gap there. That's pretty significant. Now, the POCUS group also had a faster time to get to the operating room, which accounted for an hour and a half faster times overall. But... Where exactly that extra delay of another 40 minutes actually came from in the formal ultrasound group isn't clear. Since these patients were presumably no longer dwelling in the emergency department either, this delay must be coming from when they're on a stretcher somewhere. And I can only assume that if your patient is in more distress, you're going to leave them on a stretcher in a hallway for less time. So this speediness of the POCUS group might have been because they were clinically sicker. On that note, other things to consider was that those who received POCUS had a much higher proportion of ectopic pregnancies, and the authors were not able to control for a lot of things in this study, like the patient's shock index, their race, whether or not they were visiting during times that radiology wasn't open, and all of this was because of the small sample size. Now these are some pretty significant limitations. So although this study was positive for POCUS, it's not certain whether it was POCUS that was actually making a difference. In a spoonful, the use of POCUS is associated with shorter emergency department lengths of stay and shorter times to the OR in patients with ruptured ectopic pregnancies compared to when they just receive a radiology-based ultrasound alone. All right, I've taken a few deep breaths. We can go on to the fifth article. Titled, Milrinone as compared with Dibutamine in the treatment of cardiogenic shock out of the New England Journal of Medicine. 
So cardiac shock is defined as low cardiac output. So your heart just isn't pumping as well as it ought to be. And that results in hypoperfusion, no surprise. So as with any organ failure, it's not something you want to have. It's associated with significant morbidity and mortality. So we've got a pretty high-quality study, a double-blinded, randomized control trial of 192 patients at a single center where patients were randomized to inotropic support with either dibutamine or milrinone. The patient population included those over 18 years of age who were admitted to the cardiac ICU and met the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions definition for stage B, C, D, or E cardiogenic shock. The primary outcome for this study was the composite measure of in-hospital death from any cause, resuscitated cardiac arrest, receipt of cardiac transplant or mechanical circulatory support, non-fatal myocardial infarction, a TIA, a CVA, or initiation of renal replacement therapy. The authors powered this study looking for milrinone to have a 20% lower rate of the primary outcome compared to dibutamine. This didn't happen. Instead, milrinone had just a 5% lower rate, 49% compared with dimutamine at 54%, which was without statistical significance. However, like I said, the study just wasn't powered to find that small of a difference. There was also no difference in any of the secondary outcomes. As well, the use of pulmonary artery catheters was rare, so the study did not include changes in cardiac index, um, you know, pulmonary wedge pressures, or systemic vascular resistance, and instead, clinical assessment was used for enrollment and the dose adjustments. Both of these medications are considered inodilators, meaning that they're inotropes that also vasodilate, and could therefore worsen hypotension if they're not used properly. In a spoonful, unfortunately, these authors were a little bit underambitious, resulting in an underpowered study which found no differences between milrinone and dibutamine for the treatment of cardiogenic shock. Alright, I've been a little bit sassy this week, but let's wrap it up and see what we covered. First off, low risk is, well, low risk, and intermediate risk by the heart score seems to be just that, with a 0.5% chance of clinically relevant adverse cardiac events, perhaps these patients shouldn't just necessarily be sent home. Second, vaccines work, you guys. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines provide significant protection against hospitalization due to COVID-19. From the third article, if you know you're going to order a chest x-ray when you get back to your desk, then while you're still there with the patient, do a quick POCUS assessment to look for pulmonary edema and maybe save yourself the trouble of ordering that chest x-ray. Fourth, from a study that could have had a lot of confounders, there was an association found between the use of POCUS and faster treatment for ectopic pregnancies, though it wasn't certain if this was motivated by the patient's clinical status or the actual use of POCUS. And then fifth, this study, though lacking power, did not find a statistical difference between the use of milrinone and dibutamine for treating cardiogenic shock. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them, we have CME credits that are just waiting for you at our website, journalfeed.org, and these are provided through our partnership with Hippo Education. Also, if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds of all of these things that we talk about right through your emails, you can also find those at the very same place. Again, that website is journalfeed.org. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you. More power. <laughs>